People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation do we end up bringing people together again and what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. We welcome to um, Reality Check Radio Anzac special, David Broom. David Broom's an old mate of mine from way back, my comms man at Fed Farmers, and he has a large knowledge, as I've always known about, around political um, science, military history, and a major bent for um, naval history, I gather. So welcome, David. Um, we'd like to sort of talk to you about the significance of Anzac Day to you. I know you and your family put a lot of effort into being true patriots and put a lot of effort in on Anzac Day. And yeah, if you can just give us a bit of an overview of your significance of it, and then we'll talk about your visit to Gallipoli. Yeah, sure. I think what what Anzac Day uh, is to me, and, and there's actually two critical dates, which is both uh, Anzac Day, of course, the 25th of April, but also the 11th of November, um, which, of course, is when the, the Great War ended or, or um, a Remembrance Sunday as they have in the UK. Uh, it's uh, I tend to celebrate or commemorate. It's always a bad word to use the word celebrate. Commemorate is, is probably more appropriate. Uh, those those two key dates, and I know with my son, I've I've dragged him around uh, Commonwealth War Grave cemeteries, uh, both here and in Europe and in Southeast Asia. Uh, we've we've been to uh, the the Burma. Uh, railway, which of course was not a particularly nice uh, experience, uh, and actually there are a number of graves around New Zealand. And I think if anyone could do something good, it's actually to reach out for what's called the Remembrance Army, which is a, a voluntary organisation which goes around to try restore graves. And it's and, and I find it's a bit of a shame uh, that you've got councils in New Zealand uh, which are actually actively sometimes blocking them from actually going through and actually restoring graves. I just find it baffling uh, because these are people which have not just the best intentions, they've actually got the best kit and the best uh, ingredients to actually clean up those uh, war graves. And and these are commemorate soldiers who uh, are uh, ones which are both uh, outside the Commonwealth War Grave Cemeteries because they're magnificently paid and, and I know, Don, you're not a great fan of, of taxation, you know, sometimes the best of times, but 
what I would say is that the money that we put into the Commonwealth War Graves, uh, which is to maintain the cemeteries uh, uh, here and, and actually all around the world, is money incredibly well spent. Uh, it's, it's moving and poignant when you've actually gone on there and, and you can trace people through. And I've, I've been from Tobruk uh, through to uh, the back blocks of the Western Front uh, and, and as I said before, all the way through to uh, Southeast Asia as well, and that includes uh, Malaysia, we've got roundabouts and all that sort of thing. And, and the effort and the care and attention uh, really rams home what that word about sacrifice is. And, and you've got a generation of people which uh, did not complain, they did not uh, grumble, or well, there was always complaining and grumbling, but that's nature when you've been in the military. And I've, I've had a short stint um, in, in the British territorials. And that goes with the territory. How, what I would say is that there was that sense of self-sacrifice, which sometimes you wonder if we've lost that, that we, we don't put our other, others before yourself. Um, and, you know, it's that, that old uh, Christian thing about, you know, no love has greater love than to give one's life for another. And I'm murdering that, that, um, that, that proverb, but I think you'll, you'll get my drift. Um, it's, and that's what Anzac Day is to me. Is it's about commemorating those people, whether they were uh, here at home working on farms um, to supply the food which kept uh, our troops and kept uh, basically us in the fight. And when I say us, it was uh, always uh, that 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 ideal of democracy against tyranny, and that was very much the case in both the First World War and actually in the Second World War. Uh, it was there. There was no difference. Imagine if Germany had won the First World War, you would have had an autocratic, uh, basically an autocratic uh, military dictatorship astride all of Europe. Our world history would have been very different. In the Second World War, you had uh, you had philosophies built on pure racism, uh, which were there. That was both in the case of the Germans and actually the Japanese. Um, who viewed uh, their racial purity above all else. And, and that led to some of the most despicable crimes we've actually ever seen in world history. Um, so when these people gave their lives and gave their all, and these were people which may have come back with all sorts of injuries which were seen and unseen, when they came back to this country and, and they, they, if they died in service, they're commemorated by the Commonwealth War Graves, they died of their injuries years later or through other uh, terrible uh, outcomes which affected them psychologically, and they may be buried in just normal cemeteries. It's a time to reflect on those people and everyone in that generation which supported them. Man, that is a heck of an overview, David. Uh, it does make one have a lump in their throat. Uh, it makes me feel like I'm a poor performer, uh, but I have been around the Invercargill Cenotaph recently, and you look at even my family's names, my surnames, uh, my mother's surnames that are in, on that Cenotaph, and you realise the sacrifice uh, and, the, and the change that all those families had to go through. Um, and so, you know, a hundred and something years on from Gallipoli, we do remember them uh, fondly uh, and with respect. So moving on, uh, the visit to Gallipoli itself, mm. um, you know, I've 
I've been to uh, into some places around the world too that make you take a deep breath and reflect, and you do have deep emotion when you go into some of these places. What did it, what did it do for you and your family when you went to Gallipoli? Um, what were emotions. It, it was one of I didn't really know what to expect uh, because you when you go to Gallipoli you actually stay on the Asian side of the shore because this is where you get those those bizarre. Uh, delineations in world geography because the Gallipoli shore is actually in Europe but the accommodation is actually in Asia. So quite simply you can look from Asia over to Europe and and when you go to Istanbul, Constantinople as it once was you actually physically drive you can drive from Europe to Asia and back again Uh, and so you stay over in the Asiatic shore because that's where the accommodation is and on the first day you get there, because it's really two days, and it's, it's what actually a lot of New Zealanders will be doing right now. They'll be, um, they'll be probably having a few uh, beverages uh, right now before they go to sleep. And uh, you, your first day you go there, you actually do, it's actually more like three days, because when you arrive, you arrive on, on sort of the evening, you check into the hotel. This, the first day, you actually then get taken over by a ferry over to uh, Gallipoli. And and when people talk about Gallipoli, there's really two uh, Gallipolis. Um, there's the Gallipoli that we know, because it's the peninsula, uh, Anzac Cove. And also at the base of it is Cape Hellas, is where the, the British uh, um, arrived and and um, you know, in a famous ship called the River Clyde, which, uh, the, you know, which beached um, and is an amphibious landing. Because the one thing which a lot of people don't realise, this was the the first, this was the largest amphibious invasion the world had ever seen to that point. And it, the lessons which they learnt at Gallipoli uh, would play out uh, several decades later in, in Normandy, uh, when the largest amphibious operation in the world ever came uh, to fruition. And both in terms of London, you, you had uh, Winston Churchill was there. Uh, let's say he didn't exactly cover himself a lot of glory in the in the planning for the uh, first one, um, and it was in that that sort of the backdrop before you get there. It's always worth to study up a bit of just the, the history of it because the the land invasion of Gallipoli was never planned. It was meant to be an all naval attack, and that that took place in February of 2015. The ships, uh, the battleships, um, both French and British. The plan was basically to storm through um, uh, um, through the Bosphorus, uh, get into Constantinople, blast a few shells into the Sultan's Palace, QED. That would be uh, Turkey out of the war. That would open up a route to Austria, and then they'd collapse Germany through opening the Second Front. It was what was called the Easterner approach. And um, and I'd, I'd say that, that the more realists like uh, uh, Lord Haig uh, or General Haig at the time were Westerners, that the decisive battle was always going to be in the Western Front. So the New Zealand troops, uh, very much when they, they were embarked from Wellington, and so literally you go from Wellington, it's where the main body departed from, escorted by a, a Japanese ship, because uh, everyone's got to remember, Japan was on our side in the First World War. Uh, and they all thought they were going to the Western Front, and then they got dropped off in Egypt. Um, and you had this naval attack, and it, it did not quite work out that particularly well. Um, they ran into a minefield. The minesweepers could barely make a headway against the outflying current because it's a viciously fast current which flows out from the Black Sea uh, through, that, through the Narrows. 
and um, and so they became putty for the shore batteries or the um, you know they had field guns. Uh, when the battleships went in to engage field guns, unfortunately they ran into a minefield which had been laid. And so after the loss of two uh, French battleships and uh, and a British battleship, um, they then withdrew. And that's when they said, right, we've got to send the troops in because we've got to get rid of those pesky shore batteries. And that's what led to the invasion being put together. And, and when you consider this was like February, the invasion took place in April, it took three years to plan the Normandy invasion, um, you know, and and so this was put together very quickly. And so when you cross over to to the the shores of Gallipoli and you land at a, at a ferry jetty, uh, you, you, all these emotions are running through your head. And and when you land there, you realise, my God, you know, they landed in the wrong place at Anzac Cove. Um, the the train was not gentle. It's basically the what's well, a bit like Wellington, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like steep hills. They had to scramble up there, and the Australians, when they got there, um, they just uh, basically had to leg up up hills. And there was uh, it was reasonably lightly defended when the when they invaded. Um, and the the New Zealanders, I think, came in about nine o'clock in the morning uh, in terms of the about the second and third wave. And so, um, so all of these emotions are going through your head when you're walking around, uh, and and you go through the various sites, and and it's unbelievable. There's not actually a memorial to the Australians actually in the Gallipoli Peninsula, even at um, at Lone Pine, that's actually a New Zealand memorial. So, don't they have shared memorials? Sorry to interrupt, David. The, the, don't they the, have shared memorials? Well, the borrowed the New Zealand one, which has become the de facto one for the Australians. Uh, our main one is at Chunk Bayer, uh, which is built uh, in, after the 19, after the August uh, counteroffensive. That's the famous one with um, Malone and the Wellingtonians. And that's where um, they uh, got to the heights. And when you, you climb there, and it's quite a steep climb, you can still find shell ca- um, rifle casings, 303, um, and, and other, they're just on the ground, um, which gives you an idea just how tightly contested this was. The trenches are really only about a few metres apart. Um, and, you know, we're in April, it's still reasonably cool, but in summer you're getting up to about 40 degrees. It, it goes, it snows there in winter, and it goes to about 40 degrees in summer. It's, it's just horrific conditions and when you get to the the chunk by ear you can see the bosphorus you can see what the target was uh, through the narrows you can actually see that's where they want to go and you can visually see it and it, it, you don't realize that that was actually the day one objective they never even got there oh so the ones that got there briefly had a vision of it and they were then through an amazing counterattack by the, the Turks were then thrown off it. And that was that was basically the entire Gallipoli campaign lost in August of 1915. Gee, so close and yet so far. It has always amazed me, no matter what war photos I've looked at, how the trenches were dug. You know, they don't have diggers to get in there and sort of say, look, we'll pre-prepare it for you. So um, the manpower um, uh, under under fire to get in there and, and dig trenches. I don't, I don't know how that happens, but. Um, ground, obviously- the ground there is just like rock. It's, 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 and what they did is that that's where you have things like Malone's post and, 
and, and they were, you know, um, they they actually named them after the commanders. And all they had to do was just basically with entrenching tools is just dig, dig, dig um, to get themselves down, you know, underneath the, the line of fire. And that's why the trench lines were so bizarrely close together. Um, if you look at the when the light horsemen went against, um, you know, that famous scene from Gallipoli, that's about the size of a tennis court. And yet you had about 800 men killed in a tennis court. You know, that was the the difference between the Turks were at one end and the Australians at the other. Um, it's, it's just, you know, awe-inspiring just to see how small the geography you're fighting over. It was... And, and when you see the, the graves, there's very few graves at Anzac. But that's the truth of the matter is that most of the people who died there, they've got no known grave. They're, you know, they're there. And there's what Kemal Ataturk wrote at, at the, the Turkish one, you know, the Johnny's amendments lie side by side. You know, they become our sons too. It's, it puts a tear to your eye. You know, like if, if there's one thing I'd encourage people to do, and that's the closest thing that we've got to a pilgrimage, is to go to Anzac. David, I hear your obvious fashion and I'm staggered by the wealth of knowledge you have on this. I wonder whether how you would reflect on the state of New Zealand today, you know, looking back and looking forward where we are. And I, I just don't mean the fact like, you know, I see under Auckland Council, the Franklin Boat has cancelled the Pukekohe Parade, Anzac Parade, which has been going on for 100 years. And the planning documents say that it cost a pricely sum of $7,741 when the council is looking at a $250 million hole. What I mean is, where do you, and on a bigger picture, New Zealand today, are we truly appreciative as a country? Are we truly worthy of what those men, the price that they paid for? Uh, look, I honestly think we are. I'm, I'm, I'm one of life's optimists. Um, it's, it's, you know, you know it's like what they say about, you know, the, the best generation was the Second World War. But, I, like, honestly, I think uh, put into that sort of situation today, uh, you know, I'd like to think that we'd all come to the party um, mm -hmm. and, and actually, you know, and, and stick our oar in. And I know it's a bit of a bizarre one to actually say, but in, in some respects, yeah, I didn't agree with some of the excesses which went on during the COVID lockdown, but it showed that we had that sense of solidarity. And we actually had, there was a very strong sense of community which came through. And, and that was one of the things I took as a positive, that we went into almost like a wartime mentality over, you know, over what we had to do at that time. So, David, um, with that last answer, it sort of does surprise me a bit. Uh, you know, I've found that New Zealand is quite disconnected uh, at the moment and sort of disparate almost between different parts of the community. So I'm heartened to hear that you think that um, there was sort of a, a, a sort of community connection developed after the last three or four years because it's sort of a bit different to how I've I've picked it up. But it seems to me that there's more and more of us fighting for personal freedoms um, as opposed to perhaps um, the country freedoms that, that you're talking about. But anyway, look, it's, it's great that Anzac Day can be remembered. It's great that um, your family puts their best, best foot forward and puts a big effort into... Uh, Anzac Day. Um, any last thoughts about what you're going to be doing uh, on Anzac Day? Well, I'm going to be like Daddy Uber because um, my, uh, my my son's uh, he's in St. John, so he's doing the wreath laying at uh, Pukiatu, um tomorrow morning. 
Um, so we've got, uh, we're going to get a cab down there. So that's coming at 0515. But farmers would use that because they're up at 430 anyway. So that's, that's not, a, not an issue for, for <laughs> you guys. Uh, and, um, and then uh, Letitia is playing at the citizen ceremony at 830, uh, where she wields a rather terrible uh, weapon called a clarinet. Uh, and James is also then getting changed into civvies and he's going to be singing at um, that uh, ceremony because, uh, as you know, he's, he still does a bit of singing. And then with myself, um, I will, um, in the afternoon, I've got to do an assignment, believe it or not, you know, with that, you know, if I'm doing, still doing studies, uh, I think I'm going to be studying for the rest of my life. Um, and so that's going to be my uh, sort of Anzac day, sort of wrapped up. But just just one final thought. It's it's all that that thing which I think we sort of need as a country is a challenge. I, I do take on board what you're saying, Don, that we uh, we seem to have lost our way in the world to some extent, uh, and I think it's that's probably reflected in the fact that you look at what Australia's doing with their. Uh, they have a, a, almost a very clear uh, idea of where Australia's role is in the world. Uh, in New Zealand, we seem to not have such a clear cut perception about where we are in the world. So we, we're trying to be everything to everybody, and we've got to be true to ourselves that uh, we are, uh, a, you know, we're a regional power. And you know, and it's time I believe our country needs to stand up as a regional power. Than, than trying to pretend that uh, the world's gaze is always upon us on absolutely everything we actually do. Uh, we owe it to our neighbours and we owe it to ourselves to provide regional stability because if we're not prepared to stand up for regional stability, um, as we've done in successive world wars, uh, going back to the Boer War, uh, to Vietnam, uh, and definitely in Korea, uh, and also on Malaya and those other conflicts, which are too numerous to name. If we're not prepared to stand up and actually put our best foot forward, uh, as we've done in the past, for our regional friends and definitely for our Aussie mates, then you know we are lost to some extent. Um, and that's why I'm heartened with, with the people who, who should be going to Anzac and reflect that, yes, it was sacrifice, but it was sacrifice with purpose. Yeah, well-spoken, David, and uh, I take my hat off to you and your family for your true patriotism. Uh, there's perhaps I could say, um, quite sadly, there's a lot of people that appear to be patriotic who aren't as patriotic as we need them. And I think we conclude this uh, little interview with uh, the last lines of the last post, really, and they are at the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember, remember them. them. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much Thanks. for your time, David. No, thank you so much for, for hosting me. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.